This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Steve Crocker about today's internet and artificial intelligence. Dr. Crocker is an internet pioneer having been involved with the internet effort since its inception. He also has been involved in the sharing of information across the internet, artificial intelligence, and internet security throughout his long and illustrious career. Dr. Crocker, uh, you you were involved in the internet from the inception and worked on some of the precursors to it. Has it gone in the direction that you thought it would go when you were back in the 60s working on this? So as you can imagine, uh, questions of that form come to me from time to time. Oh, quite often. I'm sure that's the standard. And um, when we were – so I was a grad student at UCLA. UCLA had the uh, fortunate uh, privilege of being the first node on the ARPANET, which was the first network that connected different kinds of computers in an academic environment and became the seedling or the, the kernel of what then evolved into the Internet. And, and that was the start to exchange academic data and information, correct? It was, it was to exchange academic information and, and data. It was to foster collaboration among the people. It was to experiment with uh, cooperative computation so that one machine might be doing something that it was good at and another machine might be doing something that it was good at. So it was actually a, um, a, a collection uh, of different uh, things, sometimes described as people-people cooperation, uh, people-machine cooperation, so you could interact with machines that were in different places, and machine-to-machine -machine cooperation, so three different styles of cooperation, if you will. And uh, 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 we could see pretty quickly that the effect was going to be very powerful and that uh, you'd want to have – if you had a machine, you'd want it to be connected into a network. Um, and so people then ask me, you know, in some form, you know, how much could you see? You know, did you uh, – how, uh, how much did you know about what was going to happen? And I usually give uh, a very straightforward reply. Everything is proceeding exactly on schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and that sends a shiver up their spine, I'm yeah. sure. Um, uh, each, we didn't spend a lot of time um, discussing the impact. Uh, we, we were in it and we knew uh, and we were more focused on how to make it happen and what some of the um, uh, technical complexities were. But we all understood – uh, that there was quite a bit of uh, impact and that it would open up a lot of doors. Uh, and I think each of us had different amounts of uh, insight or anticipation. Uh, I could see, as I said, that uh, you know, you'd want machines to be connected and people would uh, – that would be the norm. I didn't, I didn't quite anticipate Google uh, and uh, Facebook, uh, although there were social interactions right from the beginning. 
or Amazon, probably, or or, or Amazon. Oh, we did we did anticipate that there would be commerce, but it wasn't. Um, I couldn't see quite that far. I did uh, a few years later when I was working for the government. I actually uh, started a research project that was aimed at creating a commercial basis for software tools in order to facilitate uh, in, uh, better tools and make them more available as a way of uh, dealing with some of the software complexity and uh, reliability issues that persist even today. Um, so we could see that. And then, you know, some years later, I was part of a startup uh, pioneering payments on the Internet when the Internet became open for commercial things. Um, um, and, and I'm sure lots of the people who were involved had visions of uh, uh, all many of the grand things that have happened. Uh, we also had one big advantage. We had a huge advantage. Uh, we were working in research laboratories that were in of themselves looking at advanced topics in computer science. So um, the second note on the internet was at uh, SRI, now SRI International, uh, and Doug Engelbart's laboratory where they were experimenting with uh, and developing interactive methods. And he had designed and invented the mouse. He had interactive graphics and um, uh, hyperlinks and uh, 50 years ago, in the fall of 68, um, he gave a demo, which has been dubbed later the mother of all demos. And it actually had all the elements of what we now use every day, but it was just a long way from commercialization. But to say it's a long way from commercialization still means that we could see that one day everybody would have that. If you just didn't. But we were privileged to have either access to it or see it or know of it at that time. And so there was no real uh, intellectual leap of seeing that eventually it would all come. Gauging how and, how and when, gauging who would make money off of it, a whole different matter. But knowing that that's the way things were going to unfold one way or another, uh, we, we could see pretty well, actually. I want to talk about AI separately, so yep. uh, we'll put that on the shelf for a moment. But that being said, has uh, the Internet maxed out with its potential? Does it have to go to a different place uh, technologically before it can grow and evolve more? Well, the short answer, uh, at least my answer, would be no. Um, it hasn't maxed out, and it doesn't have to go to a different place. But that's the sort of top layer of a more complicated right. discussion. Uh, the Internet, in a sense, is a very, very simple uh, notion of you just get everything connected and you can have messages and packets and bits flow from one place to another. Uh, things get interesting when you then say, well, what are you going to do with it or how is that all going to work in practice and so forth. And um, – uh, so your question uh, touches on uh, maybe two big things that I want to mention. Sure. One is um, we obviously have a whole bunch of problems or ills. You have fraud. You have uh, uh, security problems and so forth. And they are getting worse and we have to deal with those. And there is not a single magic bullet that's going to deal with all of them. There's a multiplicity of different issues. Uh, just the term security is a blanket term that covers a huge range of things. Uh, so there's going to have to be, and there is, a, a huge amount of work in that area. It will be technical work. It will be regulatory work. It will be uh, uh, consciousness raising uh, so that you don't have your children unnecessarily exposing things that they shouldn't expose personally. Um, and uh, so that's one side of it. The other side is that uh, uh, the, the Internet is uh, 
in its simplest form, is just a conveyance, just a transport mechanism. The question is, what is what's being conveyed? And then on top of that, you put very complicated, uh, ever-involving, more complicated uh, processes. And so uh, you use the information to do smart things. We now have speech. You can talk into these things. So that's a whole other technology, but it's, it, it sort of co-evolves with uh, the Internet. You have... Um, um, you know, uh, all kinds of facial recognition and, and other uh, things. Uh, the, um, so you can do smart things and they get smarter and smarter and smarter. Uh, and then it gets interwoven with the fabric of the Internet so that you get these smart processes uh, at different layers that are doing bits and pieces of things. So it's not just like one gigantic brain that's sitting off in a corner and you come and talk to it. It's sort of right. that that technology. Uh, just a small example. It's like going to different parts of a brain. Yeah, right? going different to different parts. But, it, but it's also marbled in a way that you can't actually all identify. Yeah. Um, I was uh, actually was quite interested in artificial intelligence and spent uh, some amount of time both studying it and in the government uh, acting as a program officer for some of the support. Um, when I was a grad student at MIT in the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, um, there were people who were doing thesis, master's thesis, and PhD dissertations, developing different kinds of uh, technology uh, in natural language processing and mathematics and so forth. Today, you open up a word processor. And uh, you just type something in, and it starts complaining about not only your spelling but also your grammar, and uh, <laughs> or it changes it automatically to something. Or it changes you didn't it automatically. Want. Yeah, it can be overly helpful. <laughs> and I was I was uh, I was sending a, a piece of email, and I said uh, attached below is such and such, and it came back at me when I was ready to send it. Said uh, you said there was an attachment, but you don't have any attachment here. And I realized that it's looking for an attachment. Uh, when I only meant the text that I had copied. And I said, okay, so there's a new level of, uh, quote, intelligence, unquote, that I now have to deal with. I have to be careful how I talk to this guy. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Let's – well, before we get to artificial intelligence, I promise we'll get to it. But, but uh, I want to talk uh, – being a, trained as a lawyer and practiced as law for a number of years uh, – Law seems always to trail yeah. technology, and whether it's in medicine or or whether right. it's in right. in your field, uh, the law was dismally behind uh, where you were technologically, and I'm not sure it's caught up. What, what do you think? Um, I I tend to take a uh, somewhat balanced view of these things, so. Um, I, I completely agree. The law is a uh, trailing uh, effect, and um, that's probably better than if it were uh, ahead. Res and restricting, restricting, you, and in fact, you get a lot of discussion about permiss permissionless innovation versus regulatory over overhang and so forth. Um, and so I think that uh, particularly in our society, um, you enable people and then you, you sort of see how bad the consequences are. Only very rare circumstances do you try to prevent things in advance. Um, I'm not too keen to have people experimenting with nuclear weapons in their backyard before we make regulations <laughs> right. about it. Um, but e even so, you know, we have a pretty open society in that respect. Uh, you use the word dismal, and that uh, carries a lot of – uh, implications like we should have or it, it's very far behind. And I don't know that that's um, 
it just is. I mean, and then you work on it and you catch up and so forth. Um, it's just a reality. It's a reality, exactly. Thank you. And um, and as you know, and, and as we all experience, uh, when you make laws and you impose regulations, they don't necessarily work exactly as you wanted them to. Uh, and sometimes you're, yeah. you say, well, that didn't taste so good. Let's, <laughs> let's go back and do that again. So um, it's probably healthy all around that it be on the lagging edge and then you work carefully and so forth. Um, the results nonetheless are not perfect. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it's perfectly fine the way it is. But I don't know that you could arbitrarily make a change and that it would be better. You could make it worse. So I'm, as I say, I tend to be a, a, a bit uh, neutral about the evaluation of how all this, but but it's definitely a complicated world. Well, the net neutrality approach is, uh, yeah. to me, sort of like trying to close the barn door after the the horses <laughs> got out of the barn. Yeah. Uh, and it had a flurry of activity in the media for about a nanosecond. And then once it got into the courts, it sort of disappeared, uh, uh, but think, yet still relevant and, yeah. and important. I, I, I think uh, – I'm not an expert in it. I'm, I'm, it's not something I've wanted to spend a lot of time on, but I have watched it a bit over time. I think it's actually been coming and going over a much longer period of time and will continue. Um, there's been a, a lot of controversy about the role of encryption, for example, and uh, what what access government should have uh, to information on the net and so forth. Several years ago, not not in the last year or so, but uh, I can't even remember exactly when, there was a court decision that effectively said that because there were two competing ISPs in a particular market, that uh, therefore there was no issue about competition. And at the core, these ISPs, at least one of them, was trying to control what movies you could watch because they had a deal with uh, certain suppliers. And uh, for those of us who like to see things very open and you have all your choice, I thought, oh, well, that's bad news. Uh, oh, and the other thing is they were also con- they were also trying to charge different amounts depending upon what the content was. They said, look, Google's making all this money. Why don't we have a piece of it, which uh, goes back to uh, railroad tariffs on uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know what load you were carrying. There's this uh, famous song, I got all pig iron, I got all pig iron, right. as, he, as he passes the toll and he's, he's uh, conned. Uh, the gatekeeper there, um, the the uh, uh, and I remember thinking at the time of that court decision that uh, gee I'd like to have encryption not to prevent the government from seeing what I'm sending but to prevent the ISP from understanding exactly what kind of traffic I'm carrying none of their business uh, they can charge me more or less depending upon whether I want a high speed or whether I want a controlled uh, you know jitter so that it's good for bra- for for speech or or uh, movies but uh, I don't want them to know exactly what the content is and, and charge me different amounts on that. Um, so this this is this is going to play out over a period of time, um, and I, I I kind of alluded to this in the talk that I gave uh, mm-hmm. yesterday. Uh, in in your first course in economics, uh, uh, one is um, introduced to um, sort of the ideal of an open market where you have suppliers and you have uh, uh, people buying things and. 
The notion is free entry by suppliers and the price uh, goes up and down depending upon the demand and the supply and so forth. What happens in real life, as we all know, is that, and particularly if you try to enter the market as a, in business, as a supplier, is you do everything you can to get an edge. Everything. Everything you can. And, uh, 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 and so uh, in practice, uh, it's important for the people who are participating to have unequal access to the market, um, uh, control the amount of information, and put up other barriers for entry for people coming in. And this is not unique to the Internet. This is from time immemorial. Uh, and so that leads to antitrust laws, and it leads to uh, you know other kinds of regulatory Unfair competition, ca- competition, uh, yeah, and so forth. You have competition authorities, price fixing, uh, all kinds exactly, of all that sort of stuff. And um, uh, and the internet is just a new arena for those kinds of things to appear and have to be dealt with. Now, the precise formulation and exactly where the lines are uh, will depend upon uh, the technology of the day, uh, of course. But uh, you know, if you step back from it, particularly if you don't have a stake in the game. Um, It is the same old thing. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Artificial intelligence, you uh, said you, you spent some time at MIT uh, studying that and, and looking at it. Um, I talked to a, a reporter who just did a story about the use of artificial intelligence in policing and how uh, um, it um, – has developed some biases in it, and uh, another program they were using artificial intelligence for judges to supposedly have equal sentencing, and it ended up not being that. But albeit that we're at the front end of development of many of these things, I'm not sure the general public understands what AI is and how it fits into their daily lives and how it's already important but is going to be more important. Can you sort of give us an outlook on all of that? Uh, Yeah. So the term artificial intelligence was invented back actually in I think the late 1950s by um, John McCarthy. And the general idea, the sort of overall embracing idea is 
can we get computers to do things that are human-like in uh, that we would say involve some intelligence? And that sort of very broad and, and essentially vague idea has propelled and motivated a lot of research. It certainly attracted me um, as, a, as a relative youngster. Um, one of the things that um, a few key people would say is uh, uh, as soon as we understand what something is, it will no longer be called artificial intelligence. It will just be part of our daily fabric. Or it will be its own technology and it will have its own discipline and people will understand about it. So, And I think that that remains true in a sense. Um, what we're seeing is um, – relatively improve relative improvements in in a kind of smartness that you can put into various parts of systems um, and it isn't necessarily as I said all aggregated in one place and so you have uh, uh, down at the sort of lowest end you have the tools that we use every day like word processors or search processors that try to be a little smarter about what they are doing for you uh, than just um, automatically following your your uh, instructions, and now it's going into cars and so forth. And you know, the car, are you really sure you want to make this lane change? Uh, and you say, well, maybe not. Uh, kind of thing. Um, but let let me just jump in just for a second. But now, if you put in a uh, and these are my terms, a, a dumb inquiry into a search engine, right. you often get a dumb answer. It, it doesn't say, uh, that's probably not what you really wanted. This is what you probably wanted. Well, exactly so. And, uh, and to which uh, I'll say two things. The, the quick thing is, and, and uh, doesn't that happen with a lot of people that you talk to as well? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> um, key thing about particularly the kind of examples you talked about uh, are not only do you want the device or system you're interacting with to try to be helpful, but uh, you want to know, you want to have some sense of what its limits are and how it works and, and you want it ideally to be able to explain to you what its reasoning process is. So if you're talking about, you know, judges, for example, I remember uh, recently somebody mentioned that uh, in fact, it was, it was – I think a judge was complaining this isn't helpful unless it tells me what the path of reasoning is because I need a story to go with it. I can't just have an answer. Um, there will be biases in these things uh, and that means you're still at the early part of understanding how to use these and develop these systems. Uh, but we have biases without any of this as we know. So it's a it's an incremental uh, process. Uh, you you build you feel the systems. You feel them. You watch them closely to see what kind of errors get made. You study them in depth, and you work very hard to try to bring to the surface uh, better understanding, so that there's a degree of trust uh, that we have. We had. Uh, you know, this uh, very uh, visible incident of a Uber test uh, killed a pedestrian, and, uh, and so now there's going to be an awful lot of investigation as to how that happened. And there was uh, a Tesla accident, uh, similarly, uh, and, uh, uh, and and quite properly, we have the full range of. Uh, reactions amongst ourselves as humans. Oh, that's absolutely terrible. We must present it, prevent it. And on the other hand, you step back and you say, well, how many people do we kill without that? <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
How, yeah. how many do we kill with human drivers? Right, today? exactly. Um, and um, so it, it's a complicated world. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should tolerate all of that, but um, uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of issues in the world that we just don't know how to understand. And I think as, as we boomers age, and there are more older people now than ever yeah. because uh, we're living longer, there's a, a hope by many that we'll somehow find that silver bullet with AI for medical purposes or disease prevention yep. or, or cures. Has it advanced to the point where uh, that's a reasonable expectation? Well, if you're asking about extending life and, and sort of medical technology. Medical technology, yeah, AI yeah. and medicine. Yeah. I don't know what to think exactly. I mean, there's been huge, huge advances in uh, medical technology, and uh, uh, many of us have benefited from procedures that were not available 20 years ago. Uh, and I imagine there'll be more and more so. Uh, there's still an awful lot that we don't understand about the body. Uh, and, of course, many of the diseases uh, and uh, difficulties that we have in our aging population weren't an issue uh, 100 years ago because you didn't have people who lived that long and so they didn't suffer from uh, those sort of things. So um, if you imagine that p the average lifespan instead of being 70, 80 years, whatever it is now, uh, moves up to say some unimaginable 120 or 150 years, who knows what kind of debilitating effects uh, are going to be uh, commonplace uh, and what kind of journal articles are going to be written about, uh, you know, the, the most common ailment, ailment among those 120-plus years old is the following. You know, it's like a nice problem to have, but a problem right. nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I don't know where all that's going to go. Obviously, um, you know, we're doing pretty well on uh, – on heart attacks used to be terrible, and now they're, uh, in many, many cases, just sort of annoyances, which is very peculiar. Uh, strokes, not so much. Cancer, on the other hand, although there's many, many advances, there's a multiplicity of issues, and I don't know when we're going to feel that we've gotten control of cancer as a, uh, a large set. So I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I think that'll be just one of continual escalation, um, so forth. I'd say in advance, this could be the stupidest question you've received on your visit here. But artificial intelligence just names mean things, and that's a name that yep. either people embrace or, right. or they're frightened of. Right. I think it, that's what John McCarthy had in mind exactly was, an attention-getting <laughs> uh, for, for better or for worse. But – in developing artificial intelligence, does one, if you're in that development group, does one look at how the brain processes things? I mean, is the brain a model for artificial intelligence, or is that just too far-fetched? So that's not uh, anywhere close. Well, I actually haven't anybody ask what I consider to be stupid questions at all, but that's, uh, your question is actually one of uh, the best or at least I'll say my favorite because my entry into all of this was um, I, I had the particular experience of sitting in a freshman class of psychology 
that I was taking during my last year of high school. I was able to take a course or two at UCLA. And um, so an available class time, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at, uh, at 2 o'clock, was uh, Psych 1A. And uh, I had been exposed to programming and was, you know, getting more and more uh, attracted into uh, computers and software. And uh, one of the topic that the professor covered was a so-called Guthrie model of perception, and he said it had four axioms. So as a math geek, my ears perked up. <laughs> uh, exactly. And I asked some question more or less of the form, probably not as coherent as I'm going to say it now. Couldn't you – test that theory by programming up those rules and seeing if it behaved that way. And I was very much attracted to the idea of studying human intelligence and cognition and thought processes and using computer science techniques as opposed to classic uh, psychology research techniques for getting at exactly that. And, uh, and I, was, I went off and studied uh, artificial intelligence at MIT for a little while. Uh, and uh, moved into other areas, and particularly into the Internet. Um, but uh, as I look now to see the prominence of artificial intelligence, and you look under the covers, what's actually going on is nothing like what I had anticipated would happen in terms of studying things. I mean, we looked at um, how people played chess. We looked at how people solved uh, various kinds of problems, how they did mathematics, and I was interested in how people wrote software. And now you look and say, how does Google Translate work? And it works well. It works amazingly well. I mean, you just sort of toss this text in and it translates, figures out what language is and tells you what the content is. Not perfect, but uh, usable. And then you look under the covers and it's nothing like uh, studying the brain in the sense that we had in mind at the time. Um, and uh, uh, so I think, I think there's a rich range of issues there, partly how to study how the brain works, partly how to study how to do these tasks independent of whether or not they're done exactly the same way or in a different way. Um, I think there's still underneath quite a lot of similarity. Uh, I tended to look at sort of deep thought types of things. First you look at this and then you look at this and you reason about this and so forth. Um, quite a lot of the brain I've learned is uh, – uh, sort of a big table lookup kind of thing. Uh, there's a huge amount of real estate in the extended brain, I'll say, that is involved in coordination. And so uh, hand-eye coordination. So if somebody throws a ball at you and you, you pick up your hand and you, you go to it, that is a very complicated uh, and delicate computation if you look at it as a computational thing of a company. But if you've done a lot of it, if you have a lot of practice and you store that practice in nerve cells and extended uh, 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 lower parts of the brain, uh, uh, muscle, the, the, the muscle part of the neural system, that, kind of yeah. yeah. Then that's what all that practice is good at, and you, and that's the way the humans have evolved. Um, and you look at um, the amount of neural tissue that's devoted to perception, uh, rather than just the amount in the upper cortex. Um, and I'm I'm just basically a rank amateur at this, and just trying to match what my initial expectations of saying, I'm, you know, I'm going to try to get a computer to think hard versus getting a computer that knows a lot and therefore can respond properly to one pattern versus another. Two areas that, that I want to get to and then I'll let you go. But uh, the first is 
My experience, both as a journalist and as a lawyer, is that eyewitness testimony is the most unreliable testimony there is. We all see things through our own lenses. We see things differently. We process things differently. If you're looking for an ultimate truth, that's not a very reliable way of, of doing it. Can we look at some kind of potential in coming up with ultimate truth through AI? If, if we introduce various factors mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to she was wearing a red dress when she was really wearing a blue dress, if that matters in a particular situation. It's a deep question and deeper than uh, it might seem, and as I'm sure you actually have in mind. Um, simple technologies like having a camera will tell you whether she had a red dress or a blue dress. Um, and in the superficial sense of what's the truth, uh, that'll be the case. And in many cases, that's important for deciding whether or not that was the person. But the underlying question is, was that the person who did this? And uh, as is quite common in today's news, it's not only a question of whether they did something or didn't something, but what were they thinking about? What was their intent? And uh, uh, no amount of photographic uh, or recording is going to tell you what was in their heart or what was in their mind. or So you have these models in uh, the judicial system about it uh, that include intent versus in the physical world and in the computing world is and trying to match those together is very very complicated um, we're going to have uh, quite a bit of uh, we already have we're going to have quite a bit more uh, technical assistance automation and so forth mm-hmm. and nonetheless uh, it's going to be challenging I think as a as a layperson talking about the, the judicial system uh, I think it's going to be challenging how you bring those together and the skills of attorneys and judges to uh, bridge that and uh, lay down um, proper rules for thinking about it and judging. Uh, well, part, of my, part of my job as a trial attorney was to manipulate those facts to my theory of the case. And clearly it was the prosecution's view to manipulate those facts. Oh, so you were on that side, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> to to, to, to uh, advance their case, the judge acts as the, the referee to right. make sure people are playing within within the rules. But there wasn't a search for ultimate truth. There was a search for facts that one could manipulate to one's own, yeah. own, own theory. But yet we use the verbiage that we're right. looking for ultimate truth. So, so my, my first love and first training is in mathematics where uh, there's a very restricted arena and a very specific notion of what constitutes truth in the sense of what you could prove and, and follow the rules and so forth. Even there, things can get uh, a bit complicated. When we move out into the world that, that we actually live in, uh, uh, truth is kind of an abstraction that we aspire to. Um, and yet, in a practical sense, we live uh, and quite comfortably with uh, approximations at best 
and, and ambiguity and ambiguity and uh, and and in more recent years when I've been involved in political or diplomatic kinds of arenas I learned a term which uh, I would have sneered at uh, in my younger age of um, called constructive ambiguity <laughs> uh, which is um, uh, a polite term for uh, a deliberate uh, uh, agreement to not have a common understanding about things. And I said, well, you know, why is that useful? I mean, I live in an environment where we want to build things, we want things to work right, and so forth. We want to actually understand how they work. And then I move into, you know, uh, these other environments, and uh, people talk about constructive ambiguity, which is um, sort of a close cousin of kicking the can down the road and somebody else's problem to figure it out later. And we agree that. And we agree that <laughs> we, that's what we're going to do. That's what say, we're doing. Uh, Last thing I want to ask you about is that uh, we see generational use. My generation, your generation, uh, most of us came to technology late in our lives or, or, or some of us didn't come to it at all yeah. in, in some respects. Uh, to an example of that is just listening to the senators' questions to Zuckerberg this this week were just abominations showing how little they know uh, about th these fields. But I also see young children with tablets in the in their yeah. uh, in their playpens and and uh, or whatever they're called these days. But it, it, those kids. I believe are going to learn differently than the millennials learn, than we learned. And if we're in the education world, as, no. as I am, how do we anticipate the, this alteration, this reliance on not just the internet, but all forms of technology? Sure. Um, well, it, it is. It's truly delightful to watch these very young children deal with technology as if it's always been there. And you see a young child walk up to a TV screen and try to swipe it and be confused that nothing happens yeah. because everything else that they touch, it works. They're clearly growing up with access to and use of an empowerment of that technology. And in fact, one of the exciting things is that the acquisition of language in young children is much earlier than you can experience just by listening to them because they actually can understand language and they can understand the concepts behind language, uh, but they can't express it until they're two or so. Um, and uh, but uh, you know even a year earlier, it's clear that stuff is going on, and that uh, t in tablets and other things they can make things happen, uh, and they're already sort of sentient uh, beings. Uh, I I don't think there's anything deeply fundamentally different. I mean, we humans come out of the womb um, with the same DNA, more or less, and uh, if we're evolving, we're we're evolving at a very slow rate compared to technology. So I think the, the deeper principles are going to be the same. Uh, the specifics uh, and how we deal with that and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, the kids today have no, um, uh, don't know anything about hunting saber-toothed tiger, tigers to <laughs> survive, to, to, you know, <laughs> to reflect to on, the, on essays that we grew up with in right. kids about the changing of the curriculum. So I think the curriculum has to change in a natural way and uh, kids will come to school um, knowing more, but knowing different things, not knowing some of the things that uh, uh, 
other kids would know? I because I'm in media and we're always looking at what the next iteration of media uh-huh. is going to be. Some people are saying that these young people uh, that we just described will be more experiential based uh, when they get to education. It'll be less, let's look at this textbook, let's read this textbook, do this worksheet. It's going to be some kind of experience to induce learning. Now, I don't know whether that's true, but that's that's what we're thinking about in many respects. Um, I think one of the absolutely phenomenally beautiful things about uh, humans as a uh, as a, uh, as an organism is that uh, we abstract, we uh, make use of patterns, and we have uh, models in our head. And all the experience, um, we process very quickly and instinctively into assembling it into things. This relates to your eyewitness. Uh, one of the, you know, sort of the underlying reasons is because we are not just simple photographic processors. We, we look at the woman in the, in, the, in the red dress and match it up against something and we remember something. But it, it interplays with the models that are in our head and then we play that back and um, – some people might have very, very specific focus on the color of the dress, and other people say, well, that's a person with a lot of uh, stuff going on. And, and then when they play that back, the color of the dress might have gotten uh, completely mangled. But I know she had black hair. <laughs> I know she had black hair yeah. uh, or um, you know, other aspects. The, um, uh, so uh, the increase in experiential uh, activity – uh, to me, it's fine. It's good. And, uh, and, but it will translate one way or another into uh, accumulating patterns and uh, making inferences based upon that. Uh, and I think that will be continue to be true. And so the specifics might be different, but I don't think that there's any fundamental uh, difference. Now, if you are stuck in the mode of saying, we expect that every kid will have read this textbook and read the words to mean the following thing and then made the following uh, conclusion, uh, then better update the uh, curriculum or update the teachers. Um, but that time will take care of that. Fascinating discussion. Thank you, Dr. Crocker. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Today we've been talking with Dr. Stephen Crocker about the evolution of the Internet, artificial intelligence, and online security. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum's also available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.